Bible, you can turn in the book of Proverbs, to Proverbs chapter 16. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. An oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. Thus far the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer, we ask for God's blessing. How wonderful, O Lord, that has given us precious judgment, oracles from his mouth, whom there was no sin. How good it is, O Lord, to know that our iniquity is atoned for by your steadfast love and faithfulness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Steadfast love and faithfulness extended us, extended to us now. And your word assures us that you are instructing us, you're refining us, you're teaching us, you're humbling us, you're purifying us, you're nurturing us, because you are faithful. And all of your promises, O oh Lord, shall come. ask that you attend to us as your people, for we are your sheep, the flock of your pasture. And we hear the voice even now of the great shepherd. So we thank you, O Lord, for your word. We pray that you would inflame our faith, that we might receive life. And we might grow from this instruction and the way of wisdom. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Come to questions 85 and 86 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. You can find them on page 974. You can find them also printed in the bulletin on the bottom page sermon notes, which is on one of the inner folds of the bulletin. Before we turn to the questions, I'll read a short selection from Ephesians chapter 2, well-known passage. Here is 
contrasted with our current state of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he would highlight that contrast for us to press upon our hearts that it is solely by grace that we are saved. It is solely by the mercy poured out upon us in love because it pleased God that any of us are alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name be praised. So we come to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. This is God's word. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Thus ends God's word. We turn now to question 85 and 86. Question 85 will essentially provide the blueprint. This is the last movement in the shorter catechism. The remainder of the catechism is essentially flushing out the blueprint that's given to us in question 85. Question 85 asks, what doth God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? To escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requireth of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, with the diligent use of all the outward means, whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption. And then question 86 asks, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. We'll be taking up primarily question 86. As I said, question 85 really gets worked out over the next sequence of Questions. You can see if you just let your eyes glance ahead. We're taking up the grace of faith this evening. What is the most precious substance on earth? Scripture sets forth all sorts of precious metals that are quite precious. It talks about bronze and copper and silver and gold. There's all sorts of really interesting stone or gems that you might uh, call to mind. You can think of even the Garden of Eden or the images in Ezekiel where these uh, precious uh, stones sort of embody life. There's a certain rarity to them, but there's also a beauty to them lending to their preciousness. Interestingly, Peter makes the comparison uh, between gold and faith. Peter uh, chapter 1. It's a passage that uh, is likely familiar to you. He says uh, that uh, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory 
and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Scripture gives us warrant to see faith as the most precious substance on earth. We can set forth gold here, which is throughout Scripture and again in common speaking the world over. That which is most precious, that which is most valuable, that for which people fight and lay down lives and expend enormous effort and energy to obtain. Here Peter says, your faith is more precious than gold. The most precious substance in your possession, I pray it is in your possession, uh, is faith. For it is by faith that you have been enabled to see. That opens up new comparisons as well. You need to think of that whole other register of precious gifts. There's many who abound in the riches of gold, the riches of silver. I don't know what our sort of technological age values. I'm sure there's some sort of metal that's necessary for some sort of parts that's very, very valuable. I don't know what it is. But whatever it is, and if you know what it is, you could fill it in there. People have that, and they want that, and they're very wealthy. But even the people who have those things know that that's not enough. And so then they expend all sorts of money and effort for what? Health. Life. They try to live forever. So there's something even more precious in a common scheme than gold. It's vitality. It's that ever-waning substance, if we might call it that, of life, sight, hearing, a beating heart, strength filling the muscles. And there's a sense in which faith also takes its place among those gifts. Faith is like breathing or the beating of a new creation heart. Faith is like seeing or the exercising of the gift of eyes healed by the gospel. Faith is like hearing or exercising the sense of ears healed by the gospel to hearken unto God's word. And in that way it comes forth as that which is truly precious. For it is that by which we can truly hear, truly see, truly live. It is that which unites us to the Lord Jesus Christ. The one in whom there is life, the eternal word, the one who is the light of the world, faith partakes of him. So it makes sense that it is set forth as that which is precious. Do you have faith? This question gives us at least something of an understanding of what faith is. It's one of those words, again, that we use so commonly, and yet perhaps might not be as well known or well understood as we might think at first blush. And so we're going to spend tonight and maybe to next week as well on uh, this gift of faith. Uh, first, 
um, Scripture sets forth different kinds of faith. Or you might just say, um, faith can be distinguished according to different types. We already compared faith to gold. And just as there's real gold, there's also fool's gold. Or so I'm told. So the movies would have me believe. While fool's gold and real gold appear alike at first glance, they're as different as night and day. One is precious, and the other is worthless. You might say dangerous because it deceives you into thinking you have much when you are really in possession of nothing at all. Scripture says there are different kinds of faith. Or we can say, Scripture grants the name faith or belief to several different types of experience, not all of which are true in saving faith. Is everybody with me there? Scripture grants the name faith or belief to several different types of experience, and not all of these experiences are true in saving faith. So we can feel our danger. We can feel the danger of being duped by these imposters. Our enemy will do whatever he can to keep as many people as possible from coming in true faith to Jesus Christ. And so he labors to keep many in a state of deception. Keeping them content with fool's gold, though they think themselves rich. Now, the purpose of this distinction is not to evaluate other people's faiths, but to orient us to the nature of the struggle, the nature of the deceiver's sleight of hand, as it were. So what are some of these imposter faiths that do real harm to churches? The first is what's called notional faith, where you'll see it designated as historical faith. I'm drawing these categories specifically from uh, Burkhoff and Turretin. You see this in James chapter 2, verse 19. Again, a well-known passage. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So you heard the word, right? Be believe. Like, that's faith. That's the verbal form of the noun, faith. He's setting forth this name of belief, this name of faith, on this experience with God that is not true in saving faith. We can even say that this experience with God whiffs of something of, let's say, a fitting response. They shudder. So it's not just purely this notional, God is one. It even trickles into the experience, they shudder. And yet, it is so plainly not true in saving faith. Now, James is going to go on to say that many in the church believe themselves to have true and faith, saving faith when they have nothing more than this notional faith, which incidentally they share with these dark creatures. 
who know that God is real. Now this doesn't diminish knowledge, the need for true knowledge as we're going to see. Faith, true and saving faith, must have true knowledge as one of its constituent elements. But what it does here is begins to allow us to differentiate between true knowledge and knowledge so-called, as it were. He says there is a contenting of the self with a certain knowledge that actually keeps you in harm's way. That's what he's saying there, right? There's a certain possession of knowledge so-called that actually keeps you in harm's way. And to this dreadful experience, Scripture grants this title of faith, which we would call notional faith. I think it's worth highlighting here because it is one of the great dangers that's always going to haunt us as confessional Presbyterians. Can we acknowledge that? That as confessional Presbyterians, we're always going to major on knowledge. We're always going to insist that careful knowing is essential to faith. One of my professors in seminary, I love him, I have a lot of respect for him, Dennis Johnson, would always say that True and saving faith is not less than right knowledge, but it is more. And so the danger for us as confessional Presbyterians who have this incredibly rich heritage of knowledge, when you read the standard, it's so careful, it's so precise, it's so thorough, it's so good. And to exercise our hearts in careful consideration of doctrine is a great good. But the devil lurks around good things, beloved. And he would have us abound with careful, precise knowledge if he can use that to get us to miss what knowledge is intended to produce, which is namely love and trust towards God. Right? He is good at this. Make no mistake. So what course of action opens up for us? Meditation. Prayer. Bathing, the reading, the hearing of God's Word, the study of God's Word in prayer. Why? Because prayer is the way we cultivate Humility. Prayer itself is an exercise of articulated dependence upon another. One of the ways we guard against the enemy's tactics in this is by heeding Paul's instruction in Ephesians 6 when he tells us how to fight the devil. I wish that were the title that the ESV gave, How to Fight the Devil. It's not quite that, but that's what Paul says, how to stand against his schemes. And what does he do? He 
opens and closes with the word. It's the belt of truth that opens the armor. It's the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit, which closes the armor. So you've got this bookend of God's word. And then what does he close with? Praying all. study of God's word, or attending, our memorization of the catechism. We catechize our children, we're praying for our children. As we catechize ourselves, we're praying that God would permeate our hearts, not with knowledge so called, but with a greater understanding of the ineffable excellencies of his person, such that we grow in love and the first pseudo-faith is notional faith. The second is temporary faith, which is really disorienting. We see this in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower. You know the parable of the sower. sower goes out and he sows seed. Some falls on the road. Some fall among rocks. Some fall among thorns. Some fall on good soil. You know this parable. How does he explain it? The Lord explains in the part that's pertinent to us. Comes in Matthew chapter 13 verses 20 through 22. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, that is, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. You can see what the Lord is doing there. He's giving us a picture of what doubtlessly many of you have experienced. You know this experience well. John's congregation, as he's addressing his church, and the first epistle of John, they had just experienced something like this. They had just had a mass departure. People whom they loved, people whom they fellowshiped with, people whom they broke bread with. They had lived alongside of his brothers and sisters. All of a sudden, they were gone. It wasn't like they went to another church. That happens to us, and that hurts a lot. This was they had left for something else entirely. They had left the Christian faith for something else. And it wasn't the Christian faith. And John's congregation is reeling from that. I mean, they are unsettled on a number of different levels. They're confused at the teaching which has caused them to depart. They're confused at the fact of the departure. John writes them. The Lord here gives something of a picture of that dreadfully disorienting experience. And notice what it would look like if you just were close to it. Notice that the seed starts to sprout. Right? The seed starts to sprout. You don't have to radically configure any of the major doctrines for that seems to be just a very plain, realistic window into what you're seeing. There's evidence 
as far as the eye can see, that there's life going on. And that would have been their experience. We sang together. We prayed together. You were there with me. That looked like signs of life to me. It looked like signs of life to all of us. And then, gone. I think it would be helpful, this picture and John's instruction, walking us through those hard seasons. We've had people, I've had it, you've had it, people who not just profess faith in Jesus Christ, but there was fruit. There seemed to be evidence that they were following Christ. I mean, significant choices in life that they had made. earnestness in the moment, all of it right there, and then all of a sudden, no, I don't want anything to do with it. That's hard. Incredibly hard. Incredibly disorienting. But the Lord cares for his own, and he would not have us be so disoriented as to uproot our faith, and so he gives us pictures like this. To say that the spiritual realities are mysterious, the enemy is fierce, the temptations of this world are real, the hostilities facing the church are intense. All of those things are set forth as real opponents to faith, which would devour us if we were left to ourselves alone. He situates us in that picture. And he helps us to make sense of it. But where does it leave us? Ideally, that word rightly received leaves us humble. Saying, persecution could just as easily cause me to shrink back. Affliction could just as easily cause me to shrink back. The riches and the concerns of this world could just as easily snuff out my faith. It brings us back to this posture of dependence. Pictures aren't intended to cause us to posture up over those who have departed to say, oh, see, see, it's a humbling that says, but for the grace of God, there go I. But he would also have us attuned to the reality that these things are not utterly unexpected. Hard, yes but not an indication that the truth which we have professed is vacuous. The value of temporary faith and knowing the enemy's tactics there is that it helps us make sense of the experiences of hurt when we watch people whom we've loved walk away. And it humbles us to feel our weakness face of very real trials and temptations, and to orient us to the one who is our strength, in whom by God's grace we will abide. The third is a strange one. It's called miraculous faith. This one's peculiar. You see it in two passages. The first is Matthew 7.22. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The second passage comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I think some people are prone to interpret this as hyperbole, but in the light of Matthew 7, it seems to me that Paul is saying the same thing. 1 Corinthians 13, 2, Paul says, If I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Now the reason I think those two passages are mutually enlightening is because you see this unsettlingly close clinging to Christ for the purpose of something astonishing. Right? I mean, in Matthew 7, did we not prophesy in your name? Right? And then here, Paul is, if not quoting the words of Jesus, at least alluding to them. Right? When he says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll be able to say to this mountain, be uprooted. That's what Paul is saying. If I have faith to remove that mountain, and I have not love. So this is Christian faith. This isn't, this is something close to the name of Christ. So whatever this is, it is a momentary grasping in the name of Christ upon a power that is then worked out by some sort of a miracle. And yet the person who is the instrument of that power doesn't really participate in that power. That seems to be the picture that's going on here. You can see how dangerous that is, right? Especially now when experience is at a premium, I mean, we root everything in experience. Experience is our litmus test for reality. Like, it's not admissible unless it's my experience. You feel the danger. These are remarkable experiences. I mean, think about it. Like, we drove out demons in your name. Again, that would have been a dramatic encounter. We've seen some of those encounters in the Gospels. Dramatic encounters. Someone visibly occupied by a dark creature, and mastery over that creature is exercised in the name of Christ, such that that person is liberated visibly. That would have been dramatic. It goes on to describe it. Many mighty works. Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? All of which would have been dramatic. So again, the point here is that the devil is content to keep people as channels of this power 
if he can keep them from being participants in the one who has all power. I'll say that I think people who have had particularly dramatic conversion experiences are vulnerable to this. Some sort of dramatic redirection of life. You're going down one very dark road, just plain drinking from sin. And then the lights go on, as it were, and you're redirected. But then slowly, you begin serving self again. And the devil is right there chirping, saying, you don't need to worry about it. You had that experience. Like, you're fine. You had that experience. Think about what you were doing, and think about what you're doing now. You're fine. The devil's content if you make a couple of moral adjustments. Like, he's very content with that. If it keeps you in darkness. His imposter faith here highlights the reality that an experience, extraordinary as it may be, even whiffing of light, is not to be mistaken for true and saving faith. The takeaway here, a belief for us, is that we put no confidence ultimately in our experiences. We're not to rest in them. We've made this distinction before that experience may be evidence, but it cannot be a foundation. The only foundation to be had, the only confidence that we are to abound in is confidence towards the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our boast. That's what Paul says. Far be it from me to boast in anything save the cross of Christ by which I have been crucified to the world and the world unto me. Each of these, notional faith, temporary faith, miraculous faith, are pale imitations of true faith and keep many people from the true faith while convincing them that they are fine. And all of these are set in contrast with this simple declaration of what true faith is. Faith in Jesus Christ. We'll end here. We'll go on to talk about the proper object of faith. We'll go on to talk about the nature of faith. We'll go on to talk about the warrant of faith. But here, let me just close by highlighting the beauty of the simpleness of faith. We hear it again and again throughout the Gospels. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Come to me, and I will give you bread. Ask of me, and I will give you living water. When hearts are struck with the conviction of desperate plight, sin, and misery, they ask in a frenzy, what must we do to be saved? And they don't get this long tome they don't get this waxing eloquent about the mysteries of the universe. It's so simple. It's so beautiful. 
Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. There's something elegant and simple about what it is. It's coming unto the Lord Jesus Christ. It's fixing your eyes upon Him as the fountain of God's grace and mercy extended unto sinners. And in His light, everything else fades. There are imposter faiths, beloved. The true version is simple and beautiful and yet inexhaustible in its riches. One of the first verses you learn is James. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. May God grant you the heart to believe. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we are a weak and needy, beset by enemies without and assailed by flesh within. Your word, O Lord, is a light and a lamp unto our feet. May we heed its warnings, its instructions, and cherish its promises. Lord, even now as we consider the enemy's design to deceive many, humble our hearts, O Lord. Open our eyes. May we be searched and known by you. May our hearts cling to the only refuge open unto poor and helpless sinners, the beloved Son. We ask these things in His name. Amen.